But really what toxic positivity is and sort of from my perspective is us trying to nudge or push someone towards being positive or grateful when they're just simply not ready. They're not in that headspace yet. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. You guys are in for a treat today because we have Erica Jossa, formerly known as Happy as a Mother, now known as Mom Well. And she is just a wealth of information. I really feel like her mission and our mission are running side by side. And we're really trying to get women and mothers the best information possible. So throughout this interview, we were just nodding our heads. She was giving very specific, tangible advice. I do want to point out at the end of the interview, she starts talking about dads. And from you guys, we hear so often like, how does my partner get resources? How does my husband get resources? And so we wanted to make sure we covered that question inside of this interview. And it's one thing that Erica has become really passionate about talking about and serving dads and fathers. And we do know that they have struggles too. So look forward to that. But this whole interview is just jam packed with awesome knowledge. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy Erica. Erica, I know that so many of our listeners already know you, your podcast, your account, but I really wanted to know why did you start it in the first place and why has it become so important to you? It's so interesting to reflect on because I had been a therapist. I'd been working with children and families for about a decade, about 10 years, And I started my own motherhood journey and I was like fast and furious thrown into the deep end. I had three boys back to back in the span of three and a half years. So my boys were three and a half and under. And I feel like I was just kind of like thrown off the deep end, like trying to flounder my way through this experience and ended up experiencing postpartum depression and anxiety, which as a therapist who literally teaches these skills for a living, it was pretty blindsiding and shocking for me. Um, And then I reflected on the fact that I didn't even know maternal mental health was a specialty, like 10 years of practice, seven years of schooling, and I didn't even know it was a niche. It was never brought up. It was never talked about. So when I uncovered it through my own experience that, hey, this is actually a whole section of research and study and specialty, I really decided to niche down. And while doing that, I took to social media to share just my, like, just my learnings and reflections, you know, like it was just such a mind opening time for me. I was like, if I don't know this, I'm going to like wager that the general public and most moms don't know that one in five women are at risk or that this is such a common experience. And, and so much of this is uh, explainable and understandable in so many ways. So it really kind of came from there. I wanted to create awareness and educate and support other moms. So I took to social media And it kind of snowballed. The pandemic hit, you know, obviously moms really struggled through that time. The podcast came about and just trying to support moms in whatever way we can, honestly. 
Yeah, I just find it so interesting that we do all of this me-search, right? We're, we're trying to figure it out for ourselves. And in the process, we realize how we can help so many other people. And just with all of your accounts, being able to bring that awareness to it, that these things are common and we have solutions. Like We can't wait to dive into that all throughout this interview. And let's really start off with this concept of the invisible load in motherhood. I mean, mm-hmm. we've heard the other experts talk about it, right? We say, you know, they, they tell us that we need to make the invisible visible by doing less and saying what we need more often. But what are some of your personal tips, Um, maybe even some strategies that the women in our community can use if they're really feeling just this weight of the invisible load? I think that one of the pieces here you captured is making the invisible visible. Many people that I work with and that message me when they come across our invisible load series explain that they felt it. They knew they were carrying a weight. They knew that it was causing distress or burnout or whatever for them, but they couldn't articulate it and put language to it. So being able to find language to explain your experience to your partner, being able to see it, put a name to it, uh, make it something, you know, pull it out of this abstract world and make it concrete and tangible so that your partner can understand is a really important piece, especially if we're going to have conversations and communicate about this, right? So that's a piece. And we've got this invisible load series that kind of serves that function. I feel like a lot of moms will like DM it to their partners to be like, see, this is what I'm talking about. This explains how I feel. So that making it visible, having a language for it piece is really, really important. And then there's another piece here where we're not going to put the load down if the being the one that does the things and the doing it all is like tied to our identity and how like our worth as a mother. So there's a real piece here that once we see the load and I feel like we have this um, like, like, like eye opening moment, I call it, or like moment where you see it for the first time, then begins this unlearning work of, wow, this is like how I've been measuring my worth and success in my role for so long is trying to be perfect in all of these areas. So then we have to wrestle with our own identity and ourselves a little bit to start to piece off and tear off and let go of some of this load. Mm, I think it's exactly what you said is that a lot of us just woke up to it. I know for me and my experience, it was like the more kids we have, we have the same trio of boys that you guys do. And they're Mm. about you know, in within three and a half years as well. And it was like, once we added that second one, all of the sudden, like the weight of it was crushing me. Whereas when we had our first, I could kind of navigate through it. So Mm -hmm. I think it gets really hard when we wake up and, and a lot of us want to start to make some changes to get into a better place. Um, but it, it can be really hard once you've set some patterns. How do you coach couples that are like, we see this is a problem and we want to get out of it? Um, like what are the first tactical steps? Well, I think that gender stereotypes play a really big role here. I'm actually writing a book on the invisible load right now. And one of the really core pieces that I'm I'm learning through the research and through chatting with people is that uh, moms feel like it is their duty to do these roles, right? Like to take mm-hmm. on and do these things because we're socialized to do it. And so we need to be able to sit down with our partner and say, actually, parenting tasks aren't gendered right? Like there are very few, if you write out a list of tasks that are done in the home, 
very few depend upon our actual biology. Like tasks, these tasks are not gendered. So being able to sit down and do that requires us to actually be able to like question a lot of these norms and learnings that we're bringing as a set of eyes to these tasks, if that makes sense. Like if we're coming to it and we see, okay, all the outside tasks of mowing the lawn and shoveling the driveway are my husband's job and all the inside the housings are my job. And we're bringing this like stereotypical norm perspective. Well, then we're never going to be able to unload because these tasks are gendered in our minds. So I think that's a really, really big place to start is like, does this task require this gendered parent to do this? Or is this just simply a neutral parenting task? Yeah, it's the ability to recognize that. And then I honestly have to coach myself out of it. For example, my partner, my husband went to the first grade meet the teacher night. And I had to coach myself that like that wasn't a mom's responsibility like that they weren't going to judge me because I wasn't there like all of these things oh that totally you, that you have to unpack oh I have an experience I'll just share for a moment this was like probably with like norms and motherhood and all the things colliding for me the most when I was like unlearning this work I was uh scheduled to speak at a virtual event there was like 1500 people signed up I'm in the green room for the event and I get a call from the school that they think my husband or my son has broken his arm, my oldest son. My husband is at home. He has nothing like he's got a flexible schedule that he can move around to go and take him for an x-ray. And I've got this live event that I'm like in queue for in the next five minutes. And I'm like, I can't, I can't go. Like, yeah. I just, I just can't like, and he has a very capable, nurturing, loving partner, like a, a parent who can take him and the guilt that wants us to be able, like that says that we have to, it's our job. What kind of a mother are you? If you're not the one that responds, like you're supposed to be nurturing and patient and kind, like what kind of monster doesn't go, <laughs> doesn't go to the x-ray with their son. I spoke to him on the phone in the office and he was calm and he was okay. And he totally understood and they just hung out and waited for the x-ray. So it it all worked out in the end, but it's definitely not always easy as you're saying to let go of these things. If this is how we've sort of been told we should do them for so long. I love that you shared that example because I think that could pull at the heartstrings of a lot of mothers, a lot of parents. And then my example too, it's like, this is what we're trying to do for women is show them like we experience these things too, because I think that it's easier to start to do it yourself if you see examples before you. One thing that I have to ask you about, because like I said, we have the same set of three boys. There is this overstimulation that can come with motherhood. And a lot of times there's moments where we can really start to feel on edge. Mm -hmm. And I am wondering what is what causes us that feeling of being on edge? Because if I'm perfectly honest, sometimes I really judge myself because I'm a working mom. And then like an hour into having them at home, that feeling will creep in. Mm hmm. I think that it's one of the um, most unexpected loads that I faced. Like, I think that regulating myself as a parent and that being some of the hardest work I have to do as a parent was something that I was not prepared for, nor did anybody warn me about, you know, um, overstimulation. I It comes from different things for different people. So we talk about understanding your personal triggers. 
right? Like becoming curious, what is going on in this situation for you that is causing that irritation or tension and frustration to build in your body, right? For me personally, it is noise. And if I'm trying to give something my focus, like three children at the same time, crawling all over me, wanting things, wanting my attention, even if I'm just trying to have a conversation with one of them and everybody else is bombarding, like it's very overstimulating and overwhelming and frustrating, frankly, to to try and triage the whole situation. So for me, noise, competing pieces for my attention. Um, and then we can step back a little bit out of the situation a little bit more and try to understand, okay, what are my vulnerability factors? What are the what are the times of day and the rhythms and the patterns when this comes up for me the most? So I know I'm way more inclined to feel overstimulated during transitions, like out the door in the morning to school or to into dinner time. So like into the house and then sitting to the table for dinner. So I understand and have become curious to sort of identify when these rhythms and times of day for me are triggering so that I can try and eliminate as many vulnerability factors as possible. So I'm going to eat something, friends, because you do not want to encounter me <laughs> overstimulated and hungry. It's not a fun scene, right? So I try my best to get ahead of what I can possibly control to try to eliminate and then if all else fails and we need to just like walk away and breathe for a moment, like I, I think that the guilt really comes in because there's a societal expectation that we're supposed to be all patient and loving and nurturing and like unconditional positive regard for our children. So the very fact that we get frustrated with them or have a negative reaction or emotion to them coming home when maybe I haven't seen them all day and I should be elated that these kids just walked in the door. Like that in itself, the experience of like a negative or complex emotion about our children is mom guilt inducing, you know? So I think that just being able to tell ourselves we're human, give ourselves some grace and some compassion. Like when we became mothers, we didn't cease to be human. And of course, this is a frustrating or overwhelming situation. And how can I take care of myself and my kids in this moment? And it's so interesting how different parts of the day can just be so much more triggering. As you said that, I'm just thinking back to Saturday morning and how much easier it is to take on some of that instead of during dinner after a long day of work and just right. knowing those triggers going into it. I mean, I, even adding on, because you brought up the competing attention, the noise, I mean, I, I want to add touch to that or any kind oh, of repetition. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> those can just send me over the edge sometimes. Um, and then just being able to notice, like, what do you need? Do you need to eat something? Do you need to walk away? Do you need to take some deep breaths? Like those are some really easy things we can do in the moment. Let's take a break to bring up our Patreon membership. Patreon is a great way that you guys can support this podcast. It's a private community that exists inside of an app or you can use the website and we just take the conversations further over there. We've simplified it this year. So it's just $10 a month. You get an exclusive episode every single month. We're going to drop it this week inside of Patreon. And what we really love is that we are able to just get even more personal, even more vulnerable over there. Also, 
the members talk to each other. So whatever you're going through, you can definitely find a member of the Patreon community that is going through the same. So if you want to join, we're going to put the link in our show notes, or you can go to patreon.com backslash herself podcast and join our private membership. And now back to the show. So I want to go into a topic that we haven't talked about on this podcast very much, but we know that you talk about really well, and that's this idea of toxic positivity. And it's something that you you know we might be trying to help ourselves with or others with, but we know that it can be so harmful in so many ways when we are just trying to help, but it just comes across in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So what's your take on toxic positivity and motherhood, and what can we do instead when someone is struggling or when maybe we ourselves are struggling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, people have some strong reactions to this topic. And I think that it's because as a culture, we're so like wellness, positivity, like mindset driven that uh, to push against that can kind of rattle the cage a little bit. But really what toxic positivity is and sort of from my perspective is us trying to nudge or push someone towards being positive or grateful when they're just simply not ready. They're not in that headspace yet, right? And this shows up in motherhood a lot. If we've had a miscarriage or we're going through infertility and we get like, oh, at least X, Y, Z, or it must be God's plan and, you know, believe in God's timing. And I know that these are often well-intentioned, but what happens is we miss the mark on what that person actually needs in the moment because they will get to a place of acceptance. Maybe they'll get to a place of, you know, rationalizing this in some way. Maybe they won't, but maybe they will. But when it's happening, that's usually not the moment, you know? And so as somebody who's trying to support moms, I think that one of the things we can do is just simply ask them what they need. Like, what do you need from me right now? Uh, Is there a way that I can help you? Do you, do you want advice or are you just, do you want me to listen? Do you want me to just be in this moment with you right now? Because when people share hardships, unplanned pregnancies, struggles to get pregnant, relationship challenges, um, it strikes pain in us right? Like our brain mirrors and feels that pain. That's what empathy really is. Like we, we start to feel that emotion ourselves. It feels very uncomfortable and we push back with, with a, a platitude of positivity. And so, um, it is, it's an interesting topic, but it is experienced throughout motherhood and so many other areas of life. And I think that we also can internalize it and do that to ourselves. Oh, my traumatic birth actually it wasn't that bad. I didn't like, it wasn't as bad as X, Y, Z, you know, they had it way worse. So how can I possibly still be upset about that experience or my breastfeeding journey and my feeding journey didn't go according to plan. Well, you know, at least I have a healthy baby, so I should really get over it. And here's the, the line where it gets tricky for people. Yes. Gratitude is important. Yes. I'm obviously very grateful for a healthy and happy baby. And if I'm, if I, the person who I'm struggling, am genuinely in that place and I can embrace gratitude, that that's great. Like we want to get there, but if I'm not, we can't push me to a destination yet. Like I have a process to go through and, and it takes longer and and each person's sort of process to get to some form of acceptance is different. 
And those words, at least, can feel so heavy in the moment of, you know, at least I have a healthy baby, or at least it happened early, according with a miscarriage. At least, at yeah. least, it can just hurt so badly when the person's trying to help out, but it just hurts so much on the inside. And I grew up, I mean, a lot of us grew up in households where toxic positivity was just the norm. So learning and unlearning the ways of toxic positivity is something that I know a lot of us are are trying to do, just to be more helpful and more supportive for our friends with what they need instead of mm -hmm. just telling them to be happy in that moment. Yeah. I grew up in an evangelical Christian environment my whole life. And I think that it was a lot of like, oh, just pray about it or God has a plan. And so like, I feel like faith can get brought into it a lot too. Um, so it, it's, it's complex and there's many layers to it, but yeah, I think that there's a need that we're, we're minimizing or validating or, or overlooking in that moment. And it's, something we can learn to do for our friends and for ourselves. So complex. So much of motherhood is complex, isn't it? Um, I want to switch topics a little bit because we have been hearing this over and over again from our audience. And this it's this feeling of low energy, like how we have such low energy when we are with our children, when we are with our families. And it can make for a really big struggle in two particular parts of parenting. So you bring up that number one, playing with our kids. It makes it just a challenge to want to play with our kids. And then number two, holding boundaries once we set them. So what are some strategies, Erica, that we can start to use when we're completely exhausted, but our kids are asking for our attention, they're asking for our energy, they want us to play, but we just can't in that moment? Mm -hmm. I think it's really important for us just on a sort of self-compassion level to recognize that our capacity and our energy level will fluctuate day to day, depending on life stressors, depending on our mental health, depending on whether the whole household is sick or not sick. Are we concerned about layoffs? Are we not? Like our, our capacity does ebb and flow. And so what that actually requires from us is mental flexibility. Because if I set expectations for myself on a high capacity day where I've got all the energy, let's say this upcoming weekend, I'm going to plan this really active, you know, Saturday and Sunday because I'm in a particularly refreshed mood the time I do it and the weekend hits and actually everybody's fighting off a cold and we're getting sick, being able to reevaluate the expectations we've placed on ourselves for the day is one of the biggest gifts of self-compassion we can give ourselves when we are struggling. So being able to say, okay, how can we maybe do an event, but shift it up a little bit? Or can we just do one and push some of the others out and start to problem solve how we can choose a path of ease in that day? And really go into a little bit more of like a triage survival mode versus plowing through with our more sort of rigid or fixated mindset. So that might look like, okay, I'm sorry, my, my little four-year-old Axel, I am not in the mood to play Paw Patrol with you today. I just cannot master up any imaginary stories in this brain of mine. Like I just cannot. But what I can do is mommy's going to make a coffee. I'm going to sit on the couch and we're going to play Simon Says, you know, and I can still engage with him and I can still interact with him. And maybe we set a timer. Mommy can do this for five minutes right now, but I'm going to give you my attention and we're going to play Simon Says. So 
choosing a, an amount of time that feels manageable, choosing an activity that you can buy into that is lower intensity for you. Like, I don't know about you guys, but like imaginary play, least favorite thing in life, like not, <laughs> not a fan. So there are ways that we can choose kindness for ourselves and still show up for our children, but it requires us to be flexible. I love how you answered that question. And I remember listening to one of your episodes on your podcast about mom guilt. And I can't remember who is on, but they were saying that the trouble with women is that we never change our expectation to our season. So we have the same expectation that we had for ourselves when we had no kids or when we had one kid and like all of a sudden you have three kids, like you're not going to be able to do all of the same stuff that you used to be able to do. But if we never level set expectations, that's when we can feel guilty or down about ourselves. Totally. As human beings, we are the worst. We are the worst for setting expectations before we've ever stepped foot in a role to understand what the true demands are, right? If we think about all of the expectations we hold in our mind about what it means to be a good mother, those were probably embedded from the time we were eight or nine years old and had no concept of what the day-to-day -day life in this role looked like. And so if we can't engage some like mental or psychological flexibility to say, what the F? Like, <laughs> what, did, what did 9, 10, 15-year-old, 20-year-old me know anything about a day in the life of a mom with three children, one who's neurodivergent, me who's neurodivergent myself? Like, I knew nothing. And therefore, my expectations should then be readjusted to the reality of my role or to the reality of the day we're in, or potentially even the moment we're in because our capacity and these energy levels and things, they all fluctuate. So flexibility is a really key piece to that. And I know that the other part of this question you had mentioned is like, how do we follow through on boundaries? And like, man, I, I really get this. Like by the end of the day, um, I am like so, so drained. I've been in meetings all day and then the kids come home from school and it's like, like, you know, herding kittens to get up and eat dinner. And it's just total chaos. And like, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> like with three <laughs> wild children is just, it just feels chaotic a lot of the time. And so energy is really lacking uh, and it can be hard to follow through on things or to uh, maybe enforce boundaries at all if you're more passive and you back off. Or calmly, if you are more of like a fighter and like a go-getter, you know, get in there. So there is something that we've started doing in my home that I have found extremely helpful. And it is getting the difficult parts out of the way before we are like so, so depleted. So an example of this. Transitions are really hard in our house. And so the kids would come in, they would eat dinner. They'd want to have some tablet time on the couch before we transition upstairs to bed. And we're all sort of at our worst at this time of day. And the transition off of tablet up to bed, disaster zone every night. It was just like getting unbearable. So then what we did was transition from dinner right upstairs into PJs, brush teeth, pee, bedtime routine, all the things. And then they could have their 20 minutes of tablet time in their bed before they go to sleep. So we reorganized our day. So one, we had to enforce boundaries a little bit less. Two, the children were like motivated 
to get through their routine to sort of get their reward on the other end. And so it's really like stepping out of the situation to see, okay, again, where are those, where are the hiccups in the routine? Like, where do we encounter them? And how can I get ahead of them if possible? And then if not, it's going to be a lot of like, breathe, they'll be in bed soon. We're going to make it through the day. And like our self-talk, we really pull on, you know, our ability to to pep talk our way through that situation. But some small adjustments can make such a difference. Erica, we are living very similar lives. <laughs> we had to make that exact same um transition a little bit better. We were really having trouble getting one of our little guys to read, which he's supposed to do for school. And we just had to switch the order in which we did things. And it made it easier on all of us. And I think sometimes we forget that the parents matter too. Like we live in such a child-centric world, but like the ease of your night is also something that we should think about. And so one thing that I saw you covered in a series is the importance of sleep. Like mm-hmm. all of us understand how important it is for our overall well-being, including our mental health. And so, but here we are with a community of moms that are often the first to sacrifice their sleep. So Mm -hmm. I wanted you to give them a pep talk and some tangible advice for how we can start to make sure that mom's sleep and rest does not come last. It's such a reframe because when we go to like our doctor or the pediatrician with our kids and we're saying, you know, like they're just not sleeping, the advice we get back is always about the baby's sleep. So we cling to controlling our child's sleep in order to try to desperately get rest for ourselves. And I'm proposing a different way. I feel like this is an infomercial coming. There is a better way, (laughs) you know? And it is that we need to, in in some ways, and I know that's not possible all of the time because we're obviously we're connected and baby controls a lot of the schedule, but we have to, in our minds, take maternal sleep outside of just the baby sleep equation and come up for a plan for mom sleep that it does not hinder depend on baby sleeping at all. And so that looks like a partner, if there is a partner in the home, uh, alternating or doing one feed at the beginning of the night so that mom can get a consecutive like four to five hours of sleep if possible. This might look like having grandparents come for a weekend so we can try and catch up on sleep and they do the night feeds if we've pumped or prepared bottles. But once we make that disconnect or we sever that belief that we only get sleep when our babies sleep, it opens up a whole world of possibilities and creative problem solving for us to figure out how mom can get restorative rest. And the reason that this is so important, so they did a study on this new postpartum depression medication that came out and it was given intravenously. So they brought two groups of moms into the hospital to administer this medication to see you know, how effective it was for treating depression. The caveat to this is that they had to go both groups into the hospital for three nights to be administered to. One group got the placebo and one group got the actual medication. Both groups significantly improved in their postpartum depression symptoms because the mom who had a newborn at home who was sleep deprived got to go into the hospital and get restorative rest for three days and came back 
And her depression symptoms in a lot of cases did not return after that or were like mild enough for her to manage sort of independently. And so we cannot understate the importance of sleep, especially in those first three to four months postpartum. And we are doing moms a disservice. I'll get on my soapbox too while in this infomercial. Like we're doing moms a disservice by not building out and creating their own plan for sleep. We do a lot of planning for baby. We get them all the gear. We get them all the comfort items. We set up their environment. We do all the things because in a lot of ways, we think that's like a gateway to us actually getting our own sleep, but we need to break that sort of belief and and prepare with our community and our friends and our resources around us for mom to have some pockets of sleep in, in those early weeks, months, always, but like especially in that early postpartum. And everyone in our community knows how much Amy and I love our sleep, Um, but we also know just how important it is. And because we do love sleep so much, when we are low on it, we can just tell how crappy we feel. And we feel like so many women are just walking around like this day in and day out, not realizing that life could be so much more fulfilling, so much less chaotic if they just could get a little bit more sleep. And it's not the magic elixir, but it sure does help. And just figuring out what are some of those strategies you can use in those early weeks, early months, even, I mean, when you have four-year-olds, six-year-olds, 10-year-olds, when they get sick, what are those strategies you can put into place so that you aren't the only one sacrificing your sleep? Let's take a quick break from this show to bring up one of our brand new partners, and that is with the Paired app. Colin and I have been having so much fun with this app. We got into this rhythm of asking, hey, babe, how was your day? Fine. How was yours? And I know that a lot of couples get into that position too. But we wanted to take it deeper. Like We I, I, we are in this marriage together. We are wanting to grow. We are wanting to learn. We wanted something more than just the surface level conversations. And the Paired app has helped us do that. It gives us prompts about our work stress. It gives us prompts about what we do in stressful situations. It gives us prompts about sex and intimacy. And what's cool is that you can choose what you want to be asked about. So if you do have a lot of troubles with communication, check that box. And the Paired app will automatically send you more questions based on the challenges that you're having. So if you go to paired.com slash herself, you do get an entire week absolutely for free. And if you love the app, which just like Colin and I, we hope that you do, you'll get 25% off the subscription. So again, that's paired, P-A-I-R-E-D dot com slash herself to start your seven day free trial. We've had this partner for just a few weeks now, and we've already heard such great feedback from our community, people who have been using them for months and months and people who just picked them up since hearing about it from the Herself podcast. And we couldn't be happier to give this discount to you guys. So if you care, you pair. We can't wait to hear what deep conversations come from the Paired app. Now back to the show. And during this conversation, we've talked a lot about moms, and I want to also pull in dads because you speak so well on not prioritizing their needs, but supporting their needs. And as women, I mean, the research shows that we feel it. We are often carrying the heaviest part of the load, but how can we also just start to check in on our partners as they navigate the transition to also becoming a parent themselves? Mm -hmm. It's interesting, the statistics around postpartum depression are like one in five women, one in seven, depending on like the studies that you read, experience postpartum depression. And if a mom is struggling, a partner is 50% more likely to also experience postpartum depression and anxiety. So one in 10 men experience postpartum depression and anxiety or anxiety. 
And if mom is experiencing it, that moves to one in five chance that they will. So it's really important for us to understand that we're a unit. And if one team member in the unit goes down, it has an impact on the other partner. And I can really um, like remember and recall this from my own experience, because when I went through my own postpartum depression and anxiety, postpartum with my third, I was under-functioning in my parenting role, in my relationship and partnership role. I felt like going upstairs to my bedroom to grab my water off the nightstand was like an enormous amount of, of work and effort. And so that speaks to the fact that my husband was doing bath times. He was doing like all, like so many things, shouldering a lot of the load. And so we have to understand that it is this like uh, ball that sort of ebbs and flows between partners. And so it is incredibly important for the functioning of the family for everybody to be well. And while mothers do shoulder the majority of the care work and household work, hands down, without a doubt, like that's our gendered role, right? That's the socialized norm for what our role should be, quote unquote. Fathers also, partners also have their own socialized gender role that they feel pressure to conform to and to live up to. And I would go as far as to say they have their own invisible load and it might not be focused on household and care work because that's not what they've been socialized into prioritizing. But there is a lot of pressure when I speak with dads about providing for their families, about helping to meet their, you know, their wife's needs and, and or their partner's needs. Like, they're, they have their own load. They're not like, you know, sitting there, kicked up, feet up, like loving every moment of this experience, like with no distress or discomfort. So I think it's a really important reframe for us that we're a team here. It's not who's got it worse. It's not keeping score, who does more over the other. We each feel pressured into roles that we need to, you know, we feel we feel we need to fulfill. And if we can sit down together and again, neutralize gender, like neutralize these roles and figure out how to share in them a bit, we can really work together as a team. Yeah. And that's one thing that is really important to us on our podcast is we really don't want to make it like moms versus dads. Mm -hmm. We want to try to figure out a way where the whole family can feel better and no one is getting left behind. I think that some of our listeners really struggle with like they're asking their teammate to step up and it just does not seem to be happening. Mm -hmm. And so I can understand where the frustration and the resentment comes from because you feel like, you know, you're out here, you're listening to happy as a mother, you're listening to herself, you're doing all of this stuff to try to improve. And yeah. you, you don't feel like your partner is putting in that same effort. We were chatting slightly before the episode about like, where are the resources for men to learn more about this stuff? So I was wondering if you could take a second, if someone does have a partner and they seem more resistant to the idea of stepping up in different ways, how do you coach couples through that? It's really interesting because sometimes what I'll hear, and I, I've worked with couples a bit sort of in my former life before I niched down in maternal mental health. And what I'll hear is like, you know, 
it's not a priority. It's like she wants the house to be this way or that way, but like to me, it's not a priority. And so if she wants it that way, she can do it sort of, you know, banter that comes out. And the reality is that we have been socialized to prioritize different things. And it doesn't mean that it's not important. Just because it's not important to you doesn't mean that it's not important. Like an example of this, like I've had conversations with my husband about, I don't know, cleanups before people come over or various things. And I'm like, when people turn up to the house and the main entry foyer is a disaster, they're not going to look to you and say, wow, like the house is a mess, right? They're going to look at me because I'm the mother and socially, this is my job. So it is a helping each other understand some of these pieces. And the resentment is real. Like in the invisible load, if you do not have a partner who is bought into the process, who's willing to unlearn, who, you know, is really actively participating and wanting to, you know, unlearn these norms and progress, Resentment is a really common byproduct of that. I was actually just reading a study in preparation for another podcast episode earlier this week, and it it's the headline of the study or the sort of the summary of it is that the feeling of carrying an unfair, invisible load in the household predicts a low sexual desire in the relationship. So When you feel like you're carrying an invisible load that is unfair or unequal and resentment is brewing, it has an impact on obviously the connection and the the communication in your relationship on the sexual desire for your partner and, you know, the frequency of the intimacy that you that you both have. So if resentment is brewing and if there's no movement, then I would like we got to triage the situation. We need to, we need to see a couple's therapist. We need to take some workshops. Like we need to figure it out because I feel like as, as a therapist, people wait until it's too late to actually engage somebody who can really help them gain some skills sort of proactively or upfront before like contempt and, you know, all of these things really sort of seep like sink their teeth in to your relationship. So yeah, I would say if there's an unwillingness, if you're coming up against a lack of movement or there's just such resentment there, then then it might require a little bit more, I don't know, one-to-one support or intensive sort of support for someone to sit down and, and mediate the situation and help through help through it. One can become such a cycle, right? So maybe our partner is wanting more connection or is feeling like there's not enough sex in the relationship and then is blaming it on us and then we're blaming it back on them. And then it's just this cycle of resentment and neither of our needs getting met. So mm-hmm. this is just a really good reminder for everyone that if you're feeling that way right now, like this is a good time just to sit down, talk with your partner, get the additional help that you need. Um, because it can, it can do so much good when you guys are getting on the same page. 
And Erica, we know that you have been in this for a while and we love your perspective on just all things parenting, all things motherhood. And we also know that with more experience comes more perspective. And your perspective has definitely been able to shift a little bit as you have been in the thick of it with your own kids. But we know that so many people in our audience right now, they have littles and they are feeling it. It is heavy right now. So what is some wisdom that you can share with our community um, if they're feeling like things are just so dang hard? Mm-hmm. One of the things that a pediatrician on my podcast recently told me, um, Dr. Whitney Caceres, uh, as she was leaving and exiting the interview, she said to moms, just because it's hard doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Just because it's hard doesn't mean that you are inadequate or you're failing. Sometimes motherhood is just very hard and it has nothing to do with our ability to manage the situation. So I would start with that, understanding that we're not failing, we're human, and perfection is not, you know, let's let's accept that it's just not attainable, it's not realistic, we're imperfect, we're human beings, and this is a hard, this is a hard gig. And then the second piece I think that follows that is that your greatest form of self-care, I want to say like in this world dramatic potentially, but is, is, is self-compassion is understanding how to speak to yourself in a way that is the nurturing caregiver or attachment figure that you needed, that you want to be for your children, that maybe you have longed for, that you can learn to be that person for yourself to talk to yourself in that way, to reassure yourself in that way, to pep talk yourself in that way. And that's probably one of the kindest things we can do for ourselves because listen, we're we're going to just like fall on our faces like in times in moments we're going to get it wrong. We're going to raise our voice or lose our cool. It's unrealistic to expect that we won't. But how we talk ourselves through those situations after the fact really truly matters. And so if you if you struggle with an inner critic or a really harsh critical inner voice, figuring out like ways to to move towards self-compassion. And I've got resources on this and a podcast episode. And Dr. Kristen Neff is the guru sort of expert researcher in this area. And she was on my podcast as well. Um, there are lots of places to start that are simple and practical, but it's the greatest thing you can do for yourself because man, like who, who, like who told us, who warned us about this, how hard motherhood would be. I, I've been saying recently, like there is a full on iceberg ahead. There was a full on iceberg and not a single person bothered to tell like, you know, the majority of us or any of us, not me. I didn't feel like I was prepared or new, but yeah, one in five of us will hit that iceberg and no one, no one tells us. So it's, yeah, we need to be able to be kind and compassionate with ourselves. We will fail. We will mess it up. We're human. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Well, in perfectionism, it's not only what we should expect. It just shouldn't be the goal, right? That just shouldn't even be part of our goal. And when we create an infomercial with you, we'll make that whole <laughs> section that you just said as the last <laughs> section we leave listeners with, because it is, it's just so important to understand those things. Um, we've loved having this talk with you. So please let our listeners know where they can find more of you. 
Yeah. As you were talking, I remembered that we have this bundled package of workshops for relationships. So I've got the resentment and an intimacy in, in your relationship workshop. So like sexual intimacy, emotional intimacy, rekindling intimacy, essentially. And I host those with Psyched Mummy, Dr. Asherina Reem. So that's a really great resource for people to start with if maybe they don't feel like they're ready for therapy yet, want it or can afford it. So that's a really great uh, conversation starter and, and starting point. But aside from that, I hang out on social media. I'm on Instagram at MomWell and the MomWell podcast. And we've got actually a learning hub and learning center on the MomWell website that helps you to navigate so many of these pain points and triggers and, and subjects that we've talked about today to be able to find resources. And the learning hub is totally free. It is really robust and has lots of educational information there. So lots of resources. Come and find me at MomWell on Instagram. Mm, and if you guys enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you shared it on Instagram, tagging mom well and herself podcast.